No plans to send British combat troops to Libya yet. A NATO security chief warns of new threats from IS terrorists. Fitting explosives inside the human body uh, of terrorists, which would make it much more difficult for those explosives to be detected. And Obama's in town to wish the Queen a happy 90th birthday. First, though, the government is being accused of massaging the figures so that it meets NATO's 2% target on defence spending. MPs on the Commons Defence Committee say the increase is bogus. They say some items, such as welfare and intelligence, have been included in the defence budget in order to bolster the figures. Well, our reporter James Hurst spoke to Julian Lewis, who's the committee's chairman, and asked him if the MOD had indeed moved the goalposts. Yes, they have moved the goalposts. Uh, They haven't broken any rules, but they haven't compared like with like. So whilst uh, we must be grateful for the fact that they did not dip below 2%, as defined by NATO's guidelines, they've nevertheless included this time significant items of expenditure which didn't used to be counted when we were calculating our percentage of GDP being spent, even though we could have counted them in the past, but we didn't. But as you say, they've not broken any rules, so there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Um, It's within the NATO rules. It's just helpful if we could have what we have not yet managed to get out of the Ministry of Defence, which is a proper calculation of what our figures would have been in terms of percentage expenditure on defence if we had applied the same standards that we've applied in previous years. Because if you're trying to see whether there has been a real increase in what you're getting for defence, you can't keep changing the methods that you use to calculate this and then say, well, we're getting more than we did the last time we looked at this. The Ministry of Defence say parts of your report are, in their word, nonsense. It is clear, they say, they're putting in more than £5 billion extra by the end of this Parliament. We're going to get more ships and planes and people. Well, it would be a very odd situation if they weren't putting in extra money, given that defence inflation always runs at a very considerable rate. I'm very surprised to hear that they're describing it in those terms. Our report very clearly recognises that they have put some new money in, but they have also counted in other factors, for example, more than a billion pounds in war pensions and pensions for MOD retired civil servants that they never used to count before. So that's not really adding anything to the money, and it's certainly not adding anything to the defence output. And something else must be said, and that is we should not be ringing all the church bells in joy that we haven't for the first time slipped below the NATO 2% minimum. We are still spending less as a percentage of GDP, even on their figures, than we ever have done in the past. And if we look back historically, we see that defence has fallen far down the list of national priorities in comparison with other high-spending departments. 
That was the chairman of the Commons Defence Committee, Julian Lewis, talking to James Hurst. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here. Uh, Christopher, he won't let anything go, will he, Julian Lewis? He won't, isn't he? He's a terrier. He's mm. a terrier, a naval terrier, of course. What, what do you make of what he was saying? Come on, he, let's he, take him from the bit, right at the back. Um, uh, defence has slipped down the list. Defence, I'm afraid, and this is a crisis, never been up the list. Um, there are 23 people in Cabinet. Um, the Defence Secretary rates about number... 14. Mm. And also, there are no votes in defence. Yeah, that said, he has a point when he says you can't really compare like with like if you're changing what's included in the budget. Uh, he wants to know exactly what it would be if you did compare like with like without those pensions added in, for example. Well, they were there before. It was exactly that way. And the debate was then on who pays for military, for example, service education, who pays for outpatients departments, all sorts of things like that, which was very difficult to quantify and very difficult to tag on. The point that the people in the defence ministry are, are making is very simple. It's twofold. One, we've got to prove that 2% is a magic figure. Now, it does. if we didn't spend 2%, it doesn't mean to say that we're not going to provide the defence that we think we yeah, need. Yeah, because the MOD always comes back and says uh, that the forces are doing well, they're well provided for, etc., etc., to that which kind is large, of argument. Which, which, which is by and large true because they haven't slipped up. There have been cases, for example, when uh, um, General Dannett, when he was CGS, was in... Afghanistan and said he had to ride around an American helicopter and suddenly the helicopter debate started. The important thing is when at the military committee in NATO the, the, the British team lay out what is their military orbit and the other m members of that military committee can see that the United Kingdom is probably two or three from the top or even at the top in some cases and so the debate which at the is moment, again what the MOD always says isn't it that's right and so the debate at the moment uh, that is raised by the committee and I think rightly so raised by the committee is not what's happening at the moment because I don't think the 2% actually matters it's what is how you spend the money you've got and you bet your bottom dollar well in fact I know it will happen at the end of this defence spending year the defence ministry will not have spent all its budget but it's got a huge thing which he thought it was all right on which is now got to find money for and that's find some engines that will make type 45s go around hmm. the world hmm. you see so uh, what they're saying is quite right but it's not the bigger picture and you look at it in five years time and it will have balanced out that's what defense economics do the foreign secretary philip hammond has told the commons the government has no plans to deploy british combat troops to libya he said the uk was ready to provide technical and training support for the new un-backed government if requested but not in a combat role. I am clear that there is no appetite in Libya for foreign combat troops on the ground. We do not anticipate any requests from the GNA for ground combat forces to take on Daesh or any other armed groups, and we have no plans to deploy troops in such a role. I will, of course, keep the House informed of any plans we develop in the future in response to requests from the Libyan government. That was Mr Hammond when he updated MPs after visiting Tripoli early this week. Well, Christopher, I mean, he's still leaving his options open, though, isn't he? Well, he'd be daft not to, wouldn't mm. he? I mean, let, let, let's go back just one step. Um, inserting uh, troops to do specialist jobs, for example, specialist forces who will do intelligence gathering jobs, etc., um, and also they'll have further jobs tied up w to some extent with, um, with migrants... The important thing in here, he's saying deployment. When you talk about deployment, and this is the problem, supposing you put, let's say, a 1,000 men in there, and let's say they were part of the Italian scheme, you've got to do this. 
you say, what sort of The Italian scheme. The Italian scheme is the Italians are trying to put together um, uh, a tripartite force, French, the, uh, the British and the Italians, to go and try and sort out what they see is the support for this uh, government of, uh, that's supposed to be running at the moment. Now, that's not going to happen because the, because the Prime Minister doesn't want them. And he said, if you let me, if you send tro- troops in here, I've got a problem because the militias will start breaking up and they'll say, no, no, you're just going back to where we were before. The important thing is this, what troops you send, where do you send them? What sort of support do they have? What are the logistics? Where is the air power, for example? <laughs> Those sort of things you can, you, you've got to do. You're not, when people get a headline and say, well, we're going to send 1,000 troops mm. or we might send 1,000 troops, you've got to start thinking, what troops? What is their role? What are the terms of reference? What are their rules of engagement? Right. None of this has yet, to be, uh, has yet been decided. We have a man who, who can answer those kind of questions, Colonel Rupert Wheelock, who was the senior British commander in Libya between 2011 and 2012. Good to speak to you today, Colonel Wheelock. If the government were to send troops, how would it work exactly? Good evening. Um, well, I do believe that many Libyans would welcome British soldiers to their country. If I had a dinner for every Libyan who said their father fought with the Brits in gallant Tobruk, I could have opened a Fonseca account in Panama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are certain things that need to be in place. Uh, as was already mentioned, you've got to have an invitation from the government, uh, the GNA, uh, the unity government that's in there, uh, and also the two governments in Tripoli and Trip- Tobruk. Uh, you need uh, a clear status of forces agreement. That was something that I never had uh, when I operated in 2011, 2012. Uh, And you need to be clear about your missions and your tasks when you send British troops over there. Mm. Just expand a bit more on on this agreement that would be needed that you say you never had yourself. Well, wherever British soldiers deploy to another country, you have to have some form of legal basis for that uh, deployment or that that task, uh, even if it's a training mission. Uh, it's simple things like uh, what happens if there's a traffic accident and a British soldier's involved in that. Uh, but then it gets to more complicated things like if there's a particular action. And what if what if you're training and then you get attacked and you have to defend yourself? Exactly. All of that needs to be detailed in a status of forces agreement. Uh, we did have one uh, which was drafted in 2011. It was put to the Libyan government, uh, and indeed uh, prime ministers spoke to each other. Uh, But it was never signed in a way which covered all the activity that I led in 2011-2012. Christopher? If you go to the United Nations and talk to them about how you deploy forces, whether they be United Nations peacekeeping forces or whatever, and I, I bet the colonel will back this up, the first thing you say, are you being invited into this country? Uh, and if so, by whom? And if so, what is the authority of that, uh, of that country to do so? And that is, the, that is at this stage, that is the, the, the nub of what is being talked about. Now, on, when that's happening, you start contingency planning, if you haven't done already. In terms of that contingency planning, Colonel Wheeler, what kind of planning would be going on potentially now? Well, it would, if it's just a training mission, then, then that would need to be uh, looked at from uh, land forces and they would have a good package. Uh, it wouldn't be dissimilar to the sorts of things that we did when we were uh, training. When I was in Baghdad, uh, we were looking after the officers uh, uh, at a place called Rastamaya. It would be a similar sort of package to that. And what about uh, if, it was, if it to be... But you do highly trained... Uh, our British officers and soldiers who went out there would have to be highly resilient and highly trained themselves 
in order to operate in what is a semi-isolated environment. And what about if it were to be combat, and for example, just the logistics of getting troops in? Well, again, that would need a completely different arrangement. I would believe that it would need need some form of uh, higher legal authority from the United Nations. Uh, it would uh, certainly need uh, support, uh, physical support in terms of capability from NATO uh, as as a backup. I wouldn't want to put British troops on the ground there without having some form of cover. You can operate from NATO bases in, in Italy quite happily, either air uh, or maritime support, as we did in 2011, 2012. Uh, without those, uh, I wouldn't see any form of combat role being viable. Colonel Rupert Wheelock, thank you very much for your time. And Colonel Wheelock is the author of Belfast to Benghazi, Untold Challenges of War. Thank you for joining us today. Still to come, a top man at NATO warns of IS bombers putting explosives inside their own bodies. And Obama's on his way, but what does he really think of Britain? Ambassadors from the NATO countries have met Russia's envoy in Brussels for the first formal meeting of the Russia-NATO Council in almost two years. Relations between Russia and the West have been tense since Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. The NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said the talks have been useful but did not mean a return to business as usual with Russia. Who'd have thought that, Christopher, really? Oh, God. I'll tell you something. (laughs) Would you expect there to be return to business I mean, you, you, you mm-hmm. see what happens. When it happens, there is a particular room, B-54. and the guys B-54, get, oh, yes, I remember that one, thank you. you. I'll that. probably never go near that. Yeah, the, yeah I always think it was still for the Bakerloo line, but it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> and they meet after enormous preparation, weeks of preparation. What's it going to be? What's going to be in the margins? Do we issue a statement? Who issues the statement? At what level are we meeting? Ambassadorial level, and therefore no decisions are being asked for. You don't even get to the point, which is the NATO usual thing, that, it, that's, that the Secretary-General's indecision is final. So what we have here is a tremendous thing, really. They are back-talking. Mm. Um, Does it mean very much? Yes, it does. It does mean because for two years they were not. Now, it doesn't mean that the Russians are going to hand back the Crimea. It doesn't mean to say you're going to say, oh, well, you know, it's all a mistake and let's let's, let's get on with it. You are now in a quite new uh, period of relations with Russia. Putin hasn't weakened. He hasn't backed down on anything. He hasn't lost out on anything. And when you look at what else the Russians are doing at the moment all with Putin's stamp. Yes. But they are talking at NATO partly because they've got to, because Russia is getting back in the chair. You say you look at the things that Russians are doing at the moment. Um, There is concern about Russia's Arctic ambitions. This week, the all-parliamentary group for polar regions met in London to discuss that the threat posed by uh, Russia to the Arctic... Yeah, um, there are Russians. Is that the big, the big game, the big thing behind all of this? I mean, the, Crimea the, and Syria being sort of sideshows in a way for Russia's ultimate ambition. I don't think. I don't think. Well, no, that's part of it. But I mean, that's what you do. You don't do one thing when you're in power. You do about four or five things, and and Ukraine um, uh, and Crimea gives or gave uh, uh, Putin even more authority within his own country. But if you take the Arctic, now I can think that we go... I can think about 25 years they've been contingency, back to the contingency planning, for operating within the Arctic. Um, there was uh, ice-breaking within the Arctic. When you saw the, when, when Garshkov uh, took over the Russian, uh, the Russian northern fleet, for example, and they introduced the new Alpha nuclear submarine, they went under the pole. Mm. Uh, got- and this was because 
they knew what was below the whole thing, and that was the most amazing riches, the, the, the riches of, of, of natural gas and oil, basically. Or it's more than that. It's natural gas and oil, gas and oil, and also these things we call uh, egocentric uh, nodules. Now that sounds not that interesting, except that it can drive part of an economy. Can you can you see the Arctic being the next flashpoint? No, I can't see it being the next flashpoint. I mean, I can see it being a flashpoint a of future different flashpoint. Then. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's not the sort. Of, I I think the the idea that it's, you know it's um, you know we're going to start war there. I'm not sure sure we get that far. What we do get, and I think this is particularly important, that there are a number of places around the world where the United States and uh, uh, and Russia in particular have wide differences of who should be there, who should have control and what that control means, and who is supporting them at the same time. And I think we're just at the beginning of that great debate, and it's, it's something which perhaps even the next president won't get into. A NATO security chief has warned of new technical threats, technological threats on the horizon from Islamic State militants. Dr Jamie Shea, the Deputy Assistant Secretary-General for Emergent Secu- Emerging Security Challenges, was speaking to our reporter Rosie Layden at the World Counter-Terror Congress in central London. As you know, ISIL currently uh, have what they call a caliphate. They have territory, which means that they have the time and the resources and indeed the expertise to uh, investigate different types of weapon. We know already uh, that they have been uh, producing and experimenting with chemical weapons, mainly mustard gas and and chlorine, and there's evidence in Syria that they've been using uh, those chemical agents on the battlefield. So that, of course, is very worrying. It's not just capturing existing stocks, but producing their own material. The second thing is that they are investing very heavily in explosives. Everywhere they go, they put thousands of explosives in the ground. For example, when they quit to Palmyra a couple of days ago, uh, they left 1,500 explosives in the ground. So the clean-up operation, uh, particularly in terms of people coming back to live in those places, is, is very difficult and very costly. And there are some reports that now, now that they are experimenting with, if you like, a human improvised explosive device, fitting explosives inside the human body uh, of terrorists, which would make it much more difficult for those explosives to be detected, uh, for instance. The other thing that's uh, of concern is the uh, analysis that they're doing in robotics, for example, uh, self-driving cars uh, that could uh, carry explosives. Uh, At the moment, as you know, they use suicide bombers uh, with uh, explosive-laden trucks. Uh, So that's potentially worrying. And then finally, one thing that's been picked up is that uh, they're uh, trying to use uh, older missiles that we thought were obsolete and uh, re-engineer them, recondition them by putting, for example, new batteries, new explosives, which could potentially allow them to fire at NATO aircraft or uh, uh, helicopters uh, over the caliphate. So uh, they uh, do have a level of sophistication which we really haven't seen before in previous terrorist organisations. Have we got mitigating measures in place or in development that would perhaps be able to help us detect a human implant explosive, for example, or to counter the sort of way they're using robotics or hoping to use robotics? 
Well, uh, certainly I think that when it comes to the missiles, yes, we have uh, measures. For example, one thing that we're doing at NATO with our Defence Against Terrorism programme of work is working a great deal, and in fact the UK Air Force, the RAF is in the lead here, uh, at uh, dealing with uh, uh, systems to uh, detect and uh, protect helicopters and aircraft against uh, missiles. For example, chaff, uh, uh, decoys, microwave. So uh, I've got a high degree of confidence that we can deal with uh, that. When it comes to, to scanners, with uh, NATO being uh, with Russia uh, before uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea, been working on something called Standex, which was uh, using uh, lasers and uh, different types of uh, uh, device uh, to detect uh, suicide bombers. Now, admittedly, that was the bomb in the rucksack or the suicide belt uh, strapped to the body rather than uh, implants. But we had a high degree of success with uh, a 100% uh, guaranteed detection rate with this uh, and we tested it a few years ago in the Paris uh, metro. We're also looking at things like detecting suicide bombers coming in on the water, for example for Port and Harbour uh, security, protection of shipping uh, terrorists have attacked ships in the past as you know. So in our Defence Against Terrorism programme will work. Yes, we do have a number of programmes underway anticipating these type of threats and uh, sort of leveraging the best science and technology in NATO to come up with a prototype that can uh, provide for a solution. That was Dr. De- Jamie Shea. The US President Barack Obama is arriving in the UK tonight for the Queen's birthday celebrations. But the royal family he really needed to see were at his last stop in Saudi Arabia. However, the President got a pretty chilly reception when he arrived in Riyadh, prompting talk of a snub. Well, let's talk to Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today, Karen. Um, a bit cool in Saudi Arabia then. Why was that? Well, there are several issues. Uh, one is a 9-11 report that was published some time ago that uh, members of Congress are trying to get declassified. And some people think that this says Saudi officials were involved in 9-11. Uh, President Obama isn't commenting directly on that, but there's concern, obviously, that that might hurt the relationship. Separately, uh, members of Congress are trying to pass a bill uh, that... Uh, to directly go after Saudi Arabia. And interestingly, Obama and uh, um, the Republicans are aligned in that this bill shouldn't be passed. Um, So there's concern about that on the Saudi side. There's also concern that the U.S. is in bed with Iran now because of the Iran deal, and the Saudis are very nervous about that. Mm. Um, But, you know, I think, look, the relationship is strong. It goes through ups and downs. uh, But I think, you know, this won't, break the relationship. So he's in the UK tonight and then he's off to Germany. What's it all about this tour? Uh, I think, he, you know, it's his last year in office and he would like to say goodbye to some friends and I think he sees the, U- the UK as well as uh, Germany as you know important partners uh, playing a, a big role and giving him support throughout his time. I don't know for certain why he's coming to both countries, but I think it's, it's a good sign. And what do you think he really thinks of the UK? The UK is one of the most important partners, obviously, of the United States. It has been critical for for a number of years, and I don't think anything has changed in his perception, irrespective of the the pivot to Asia or other issues that have happened. I mean, there's a very long-standing, strong relationship between these two countries. Mm. Do you think he'll have any opinion? I know he'd be very busy, but do you think he'll have any opinion about this Defence Committee report on this 2% of GDP spending on defence? 
I wonder. I'm not sure he'll raise that, uh, and I'm also not sure what he will say about Brexit. He has made his opinion known before. The U.S. is obviously supportive of the U.K. staying inside uh, Europe, but I think they also realize they don't want to get involved in a political debate here or, or you know, cause blowback mm. by saying the wrong thing. But you've heard other American officials or former eight former Treasury officials supporting the UK staying in Europe. So I think he'll navigate that quite carefully. But there will be impact in the relationship between the US and the UK. So I suppose if someone asks him, he will try to be as technical as possible and stay out of politics. Mm, Of course, um, Christopher, the US military are busy uh, in Iraq, notably again. Uh, Tell us about the plan to take back Mosul from so-called Islamic State. Well, ever since last year, it it was obvious that the, the Iraqis themselves could not take Mosul. I mean, when they attempted to take anything, they then tended to retreat rather quickly when the firepower became unacceptable. What's been happening quite recently, activities by the Americans by themselves and with the Kurds, um, and including knocking off some some people that you need to do so, Operation Serpent Head. If you want to sort of destroy things, you first cut off the head of the serpent. Uh, for example, um, there was one of the commanders that was defending uh, Mosul. He was picked up in an airstrike. His name is Abu Amr, or was Abu Omar al-Shishani. Al-Shishani suggesting he's not local. He is a Churchin, in fact. A very important, very experienced fighter. He was knocked off. Uh, then also the assassination of Abu Saif, who was commanding uh, ISIS against an Iraqi attack, which is in the southern defences of Mosul. Mm. Uh, they also uh, picked up uh, one of the drivers, which is very important. You get a drive, a commander's driver, pick him up, interrogate him. He knows things. He knows personalities. He knows what's going on there. They've raised their uh, some of their uh, advisers to battalion levels, um, brings their forces up to about just under 5,000, but that includes specialist forces and mm. also includes AH-64s, you know, the Apaches. So they've got close air support in the whole thing. In all, um, it is the move which has to start happening very shortly to take Mosul. Biggest problem to take in Mosul is is you've got to be pretty smart to be able to hold it and certainly to turn it in back into a city. Karen von Hippel, as President Obama comes to the UK tonight and he embarks on what you could interpret as sort of a goodbye, farewell international tour, how do you mm-hmm. think, what do you think his legacy will be on foreign policy? How will it be viewed? I think it'll be mixed. Uh, he is, I mean, obviously he's had some real successes, the Iran deal, Cuba opening, uh, those are huge successes. The Syria civil war, not so. Libya, not so. Um, the Middle East is still aflame, even though he really made a, a, an enormous effort in his Cairo speech just after he took office. So I think it'll be a mixed record. I think domestically, probably stronger. Uh, but of course, important affairs, he was also very cautious because he did not want to get into a situation like his predecessor uh, in, in the Iraq war. And so many do understand his caution. The challenge has been on Syria in particular that you can't contain conflicts like this anymore. They spill over in so many unfortunate ways. And so irrespective of his motives, which were in many ways, you know, you, you, you respect his motives, it's still very difficult because the spillover has happened in, in any event. Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Ready? Mm-hmm. Bom, 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 b
yes, in case you didn't know, it's the Queen's 90th birthday and it's been marked by gun salutes in London and Edinburgh. Oh, Christopher, you're off to the tower after that, honestly. Celebrations in the coming weeks include six major military parades and a special horse pageant. Um, she takes her role as head of the armed forces very seriously, doesn't she? Yes, she does. And also the armed forces is, takes not only her, but Prince Philip um, uh, very seriously and the others, really, as commanders, uh, colonels-in-chief, etc. Um, and this has been the case of, all, obviously, all... Uh, all, all monarchs, really, I suppose, uh, since George II, who was the last monarch to actually um, lead his forces in, 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 into war in the 1740s. Mm. Incidentally, he was the, also the guy that was asked whether he would uh, like to have an official birthday. He said, not in November when I was born, maybe. <laughs> and so they said, would you like it in the summer? And that's why the <laughs> Queen's official birthday is in June. Mm. In the past, soldiers fought for Queen and country. Still the case? I th I think that officially still the case. I think in 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 terms the whole thing has changed. I remember that was about fifteen years ago mm -hmm. at Sandhurst. People talking about no, you fight for government. The government will send you. You can have your Queen's commission. The Queen signs the commission. But I think it's something else. I think that they've uh, actually with the government now. But still, what do you think the chief of the defence staff might give her? Should he give her a present? He's giving her. He's yes. Giving her He's giving her rather good armed forces. I mean, quite frankly, with people singing into microphones, she's going to need it, isn't she? <laughs> I think the armed forces can do better than that. Uh, that's all we have time for today. Don't forget, you can download the podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Tell us what you think, or maybe not in this case. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. We're back next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. A birthday walkabout.